0: Welcome back to Revolution and Ideology. I am Jared Benson. I'm Nick Lee. And uh, we're going to dig right back in. Our last episode kind of left us hanging a little bit. We're talking about uh, stateless societies and the role of the Kurds as an example that we may be using not just in class, but for us to have some important discussion points on for, for, of course, this podcast. And as we begin to explore and research further— um, I don't know that we're finding – we're definitely finding more questions than answers, but some of these answers, we are finding some answers. And we talked about <clears throat> um, the KRG, uh, the Kurdistani regional government in Iraq and what it was able to establish, some things that went well, uh, and some hangups regarding it being maybe a model uh, stateless society. Uh, so make sure you uh, jump back and listen to that episode for some depth. That episode also gave us a very uh, – I don't want to say long and rich history of the, the Kurdish people, but I did as best I could to try and uh, you know hit, hit the highlights over thousands of years of history as best I could. So we're just going to pick right up where we left off. Um, the 2017 independence uh, referendum in, in, uh, in Iraq for the KRG, the Kurdistani regional government, did win uh, a majority of the votes, but no other states uh, were ready to sign off. Uh, the leader at the time, uh, Masoud Barzani, ends up uh, stepping down from his presidency of the KRG, and right now the referendum uh, is on a freeze. Meanwhile, let's go to another state, and I must, to refresh your memory, uh, state that the Kurds are a, a group of people that, because of uh, consistent Western meddling, uh, various other national interests, are spread across four different states. Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. We're going to now focus on uh, Turkey after focusing on Iraq and and I guess a little bit of Iran last, last, I almost said class. It's like I'm in the classroom again. No, in the last episode. Uh, So for us, we're going to focus on Uh, The Post-Turkish War for Independence, which again, we talked a little bit about in the last episode. And it's led by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, a mass modernization and westernization campaign. Um, and it is during this time that the Kurdish tribal chiefs rebelled against their interference with local autonomy. And we know that Ataturk was using nationalism as a strong uniting factor, uh, not just to win the war for independence against the Allies and eventually over the remnants of the Ottoman Sultanate, uh, but to basically coerce minority populations like Kurds, like Armenians, other groups into being part of his uh, national project. Unfortunately. Uh, There are some, uh, uh, like I said, contrasting thoughts on this, and uh, we're now, I'm going to read a couple of quotes here regarding some of the campaigns that took place during this, at least from the viewpoint of Abdullah Ocalan, who we are going to be referencing from this point forward, at least in this episode, over and over again. And uh, these quotes regarding what happened to the Kurds during the Turkish nation-building project are important. This comes from... His work, uh, War and Peace in Kurdistan, Uh, Nick's going to jump in here uh, a little bit later going through the ideology that he lays out in democratic confederalism, but I'm going to kick off here by talking about, well, it's just a cool quote, so let me just say it. The Turkish regime derived its claim for supremacy over the Kurds from alleged campaigns of conquest in Anatolia a thousand years ago. There had not been other peoples there. Therefore, Kurd and Kurdistan are non-words, non-existent, and not allowed to exist according to the official ideology. The use of these words equals an act of terrorism and is punished correspondingly. So I'm going to break that quote down. I'm going to get Nick's thoughts on it real quickly. So this is what, what Ochilan is saying. He says that the Turkish regime derives its claim for supremacy over the Kurds, the Kurds that live in what we would now call the Republic of Turkey, from alleged campaigns of conquest in Anatolia a thousand years ago in one way yes it was the Seljuks and eventually the Ottomans and numerous other Turkic speaking groups that eventually found their way into what we would call Turkey Um, that that those things did happen however the next line is important he says, in their ethically constituted story, in the manufactured narrative, they tell themselves that there had not been people there, which is one of the most ludicrous things one can say, given that this is part of, like, quote-unquote, the cradle of civilization. Various groups of people had been living, working, fighting. Like, numerous empires had been there. Like, there are so many people there for thousands of years, yet the assumption again, in the Turkish manufactured narrative of their history is that nobody was there. And this is basically unclaimed land. This has an eerie and gross uh, association for me in the way we frame the United States nation building project and the millions upon millions of indigenous people and different first nations that lived here that almost like, eh, there was a couple of interactions, maybe a Pocahontas story and a cute Thanksgiving, but whatever right like it really wasn't a thing like this is this is found land what do you think of that
1: yeah it straight up reminds me of the whole story of columbus discovering america like it's horseshit obviously
0: yeah i i mean and this is what they tell themselves therefore kurd and kurdistan are non-words non-existent and not allowed to exist according to the official ideology. So Turkey takes it even a step further than the United States, although the United States did this for a while. I mean, we've, we've PC'd up a little bit, I suppose, in the, in the last century. But for a while, yeah, being Cherokee was not a thing. Being, uh, Wampanoag was not a thing. Being Narragansett, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You were either in or you were out. And if you're out, then you are basically erased. A race, not just from like the the the the time period and your land taken and and and co-opted or or in this case, basically, it's co-opted isn't even the right word. Let's just flat out say it, dispossessed, and then ethnic cleansing. Right? What we're seeing here, though, is some similarities to that time period. That Kurd and Kurdistan are non-words. This is erasure. What do you think of that?
1: Yeah, I think it speaks a lot to the you know silencing and subjugation of a people's using language and obviously fabricated stories, which there's a rich history globally of this practice. Right.
0: And then the last part, the use of these words equals an act of terrorism and is punished accordingly. I mean, PKK is definitely considered and has been a terrorist organization in Turkey for, you know, the whole time. I mean, since it established itself, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, right in the, uh, in the seventies. But Regardless, this idea of of a Kurdish ethnicity and nationalism and vie for autonomy, um, and maybe even in some cases more mild than that, not even autonomy, just recognition under the state as an ethnic minority, like these things equate to terrorism. When I was doing research for this entire uh, Kurdish project we're working on here for both the podcast and the class, I mean, I I jumped on YouTube because we like to use videos uh, in our classroom to kind of, you know, whatever, break up the monotony and provide, you know, visual Visual stimulation. When you type in PKK or Kurd or any of those things in the various search engines, YouTube's, etc., the overwhelming amount of videos are produced by Turkish television or the Turkish government, and the use of terrorism is is or the use of the word terrorism or terrorist is I, I so much. It's so much. Uh, even even in most recent, like suicide bombing attacks in in in, in Turkey that were performed. Not by the Kurds, but by ISIS, they actually usually lead the story talking about the Kurds. So it makes it very difficult for the average uh, Turkish audience or Turkish citizen to actually firmly break away. The suicide attack was by ISIS, but they're talking about Kurds. If you're only listening to this in passing or watching this in passing, you actually make those associations yourself.
1: You know, the Kurds are fighting ISIS. Right. Yeah. but yeah. like,
0: Well, they they are. They are fighting ISIS. We already talked about the Peshmergas and what they were able to accomplish in the last episode. We're going to talk, obviously, about PKK today and what they've been able to accomplish against ISIS. But still, like, that's – I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, it, it's It's way out there. All right. Assimilation also took place, and this is what he says. He says – This is Ochilan again. Without the unifying element of language, the uniting uniting quality of collective ideas also disappears. Without this common basis, the collective ties within the ethnic group break up and become lost. Consequently, the hegemonic language and culture gain ground in the conquered ethnic and language environment. This is important uh, because one of the things that became banned... In Turkey was the teaching of Kurdish. Again, this is something that that that we can relate to here, right? Like the boarding schools that, uh, after of course the ethnic cleansing campaigns, children, uh, indigenous children were taken to boarding schools, and of course we know only taught in English and punished uh, to sometimes the most serious degree for ever using their own uh, native tongue. What do you think of that? um he goes on to say further and this makes the equation for me to what we've seen here even even more uh uh, paramount he says this happens even faster when the native language is not a literary language like Kurdish that makes it even more effective why do you think he says that
1: I mean yeah like he says it's just easier to erase the language and along with it the group of people it's just
0: and then by supporting the written language, and this ties into some of the stuff you talk about uh, in our ideologies and isms class regarding like the positivist mindset, like leaving behind these remnants and manufacturing knowledge and these types of things, these written languages... They provide all that, right? And we've talked about it in prior episodes about statecraft and things along those lines, how even, like I said, writing in and of itself is an act of power, a power, and in this case meant an oppression, oppression of those that do not get on board. Now, for the new Republic of Turkey, one of the interesting things they did is they, of course, Turkish at one point in time was also not a written language, but let's, I guess, not pay attention to that. It, of course, over time under the Ottoman rule adopted an Arabic script, one of the things that that. Ataturk do, does, and his administration does, is they moved from the Arabic script, so basically everyone almost became illiterate o- overnight, and adopted a Latin script for Turkish, which is interesting. It's super interesting that they did that. Um, and then mass education campaigns were sent out to Turkify people by learning this new Latin script for the language they already spoke. But Kurds were not allowed not to be part of this. Native language education, and this is the words of Ochelan again, native language education was banned. the hegemonic languages became the only languages that were allowed in the education system, and thus the only languages used to teach the achievements of modernity. So basically in Turkey they're basically and this is different than Iraq, right They're being erased in all capacities of society. It's not just, hey, we don't want to give you your space and we're going to infiltrate your your your, your economy, try and change the way you are, course you into participating in the state. You're going to do, you're either you're either on board completely and we're willing to quote unquote Turkify yourself, or you're erased, which is ridiculous. Um, this took place, of course, under Atatürk. His the succeeding leader, uh, İsmet Anonu, relaxed control during this time, um, and eventually the Democratic Party, uh, that again after the death of Atatürk, did restore some autonomy in the 1950s to. And again, this is in uh, the extreme uh, eastern uh, area of Turkey. Uh, in, I guess I've lost my train of thought. They established a little bit more autonomy in the eastern section of Turkey, the eastern uh, uh, area of Turkey in the 1950s. They still attempted more subtle and soft forms of Turkification, and they became more problematic. One of the things that many of the Kurds um, in eastern Turkey had a huge problem with was compulsory military service for the Turkish regime. Now, we know that's actually different. We read in the last episode some of the demands from the Kurds in Iraq, and some of them said they would, like, one of the demands is we will serve in the Iraqi military if we're allowed to perform our service in the Kurdistani region. This, the measures here are that many Kurds in Turkey didn't want to serve in the Turkish military at all. So it's interesting. They remain an unrecognized minority, and they were victimized by government policies that denied their very existence, which is reflected in what Ochilan was talking about. Um, one of the sources that we used in the in the history section, uh, Tessar, basically argued, and this is a quote from him, that they were, and he was writing in the 60s, mountain Turks who have forgotten their native language. That's how they were identified. So they're not Kurds. They're mountain Turks, which is a complete obfuscation or bastardization of their entire history. The Kurds were in the region before the Turks, right? We know the Turks migrate in the 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries. The Kurds had been there since the Aryan migration. What was that? 1500 BCE? At least. But that's what they're teaching here. This is how you control a narrative in nation-building projects. Um. All right. The Turkish Workers' Party was the first was the first with parliamentary representation that eventually took up the Turkish cause in 1970, as we're kind of fast-forwarding through some of this stuff. Um, It must also be said, though, during this time in the 1970s, the Turkish left was militantly suppressed by the government. And it's interesting to note that this Turkish left was brutally suppressed because Turkey... uh, in the '70s, was an important ally of the West in its Cold War politics. So, needless to say, we knew we know that any leftist ideology, just as in other parts of the world, would be brutally suppressed with the support of the West. So, they're using resources, they're using motivation again from the West, the United States, the basically all the NATO countries, right? And, I mean, shoot, I guess I could even rewind and backtrack that to the Truman Doctrine, where uh, Turkey and Greece were on the verge, quote-unquote, of possibly going communist, and and, and U.S. and NATO intervention in both those countries kept that from happening, and the policies remained in place. So if the Kurds were already left-leaning, which we talked about, they probably were, they were going to be suppressed under those auspices as well. Um. Ochalan then spent some time in War and Peace in Kurdistan, talking about why nationalism sprang forth uh, as a possible solution for resistance. Like Nick talked about it in the last episode too, why it might be a motivating factor. But it's interesting because Ochilan's not necessarily a nation builder. That's not what he's about. But he, are, he he tries to articulate why nationalism was such a strong force in the 20th century for Kurdish movements. And he speaks specifically of bourgeois nationalism. He says eventually nationalism emerged as a local result of the nation-state bearing almost religious features. That's powerful to me. And it's something we argue about in the ideologies class, that nationalism is not necessarily like pragmatic by any stretch of the imagination but it is very religious right it's ritualized we pledge our allegiance we stand for songs written hundreds of years ago i mean the whole thing is absolutely ludicrous if not outright cult-like and he's already arguing for that but he says needless to say those religious features do find their way into counter movements as well why do you think that is
1: i mean you talked about a little bit in the last episode but He actually talks about that same thing in the democratic confederalism reading, which I did. And talks about how national identity comes to supersede religious identity, though exactly like you just said, it adopts many similar characteristics, which is interesting. The ritual and the faith and all of these things. Um, He also discusses how it's sort of a reaction to a secularization of society that the nation state very easily slid in and filled that gap in identity as human beings in various different parts of the world began to secularize themselves and shift away from religion the nation state fit right in and filled in that gap uh which is interesting i guess yeah
0: yeah, he has a little bit of a history behind this, or at least this is his, his lens on on part of the problem here. He says the opening of Germany's foreign policy towards the Middle East. So he's actually going back in time. If you want to catch like how this all went down, you're going to have to go back to the other episode. But he's going back in time. The opening of Germany's foreign policy towards the Middle East and Central Asia then added a racist component to Turkish nationalism. So he's talking like World War One, World War II era. Um, The genocide of the Armenians, Pontic Greeks, Aramaeans, and Kurds followed. The young Turkish Republic was marked by aggressive nationalism and a very narrow understanding of the nation-state. The slogan, one language, one nation, one country, became a political dogma. And we can see, like, Ochelon's very clearly laying out what I was trying to describe, like this nation-building project um, and what it means for people that don't fit that don't fit in what we already know how it went in places like again the United States it led to the the death of millions and millions of indigenous people and the forced enslavement of another uh millions of people from somewhere else like we understand how this works so it's not necessarily unique here in Turkey nor is it even unique to the US project we could talk about it in France and so on and so forth but there seems to be this common theme and i think it, it it's very interesting to think about why the quote unquote oppressed end up then adopting this is like the the weirdest part of nationalism for me uh and the one thing that that like I both want to celebrate, but then also like ah, I don't know if this is the right the right ideology to use. Their resistance movements are formed on that, and again, it's not numerous. Sub-Saharan African movements after World War II adopted a nationalist mindset, right? Numerous Southeast Asian movements did the same, right? India's or India Gandhi's movement in India has a there is a nationalist component to it. So, I mean, you know what? I'm not even gonna ask the question. You kind of answered it in the last episode and just a little bit right now. Why do these subjugated groups tend to adopt this dominant or hegemonic ideology? It's
1: well, I think it's two reasons probably because a if it's in an era or an area where people are staking out nations and you're an oppressed population, then very naturally you also want your own nation so that you can rule yourselves and maintain your autonomy.
0: Yeah. No, it makes sense.
1: Um, anyway. Hang on, that... I had two points. Oh, oh sorry. I'm I don't a... remember what the second one is though now, so it doesn't really matter. Shit. Um, Make it up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. That's it. I, oh, the other thing is like. I think it's ideologically easier for people to digest and get behind the concept of like we as a group of people want our own state. It's much more difficult for people to comprehend and get their mind around some kind of anarchist vision of the future and autonomy, which is what we're trying to talk about here. That's much more difficult for people to digest.
0: Right. And and again, maybe we should do an entire episode on nationalism, but we actually really don't. Um, linked in, uh, at least our YouTube channel, maybe not on the, uh, the website or on iTunes or wherever else you're listening, but linked on there, um, on our YouTube channel, you can find entire like little sections, some, you know, whatever, eight to 12 minute little lessons on nationalism and its hegemonic properties. So I guess I won't necessarily, uh, include the, or start talking about those right now. You can find them again. It's on our YouTube channel uh, revolution and ideology and there are two different i think frameworks uh videos on there for nationalism one it's nationalism uh and its manifestation during the french revolution and the other is nationalism in the build-up to world war one so again just a brief like nod to some other places you can find a little bit more depth on on nationalism so i don't have to do it here
1: i also think it's interesting though that like say you want autonomy, say you're a group, any hypothetical group that wants autonomy and has enough power to be recognized on a global scale, even your colonizers and your oppressors of all kinds would push you to some type of desire of nationhood. Oh, yeah. Because they can easily manage that. It's much more difficult for them to manage some kind of anarchist sounding or seeming autonomy they have no idea how to deal with that it's much more ambiguous
0: well because they themselves probably like our listeners probably like us can't even imagine a world now without nation states and again this idea of nation state is a couple of centuries old humans have been around for three hundred fifty thousand years why did we decide upon this like we can't even imagine we can't look at a map without seeing like borders and so on all of that is about control
1: i mean the global discourse takes place in within a nationalist discourse absolutely there is no way to even have a conversation without talking about states
0: yep agreed all right let's keep going with some of this history uh, in turkey by april of 1973 a group of six uh six people were joined together to form an independent kurdish organization and i say six individuals like six individuals in april of 1973 to form a new independent kurdish organization that was going to in theory fight for autonomy and by 1974 kurdish university students um Began to be represented under the Ankara uh, Democratic Patriotic Association of Higher Education. So, in April of, of 1973, you have an organization forming. It's, it's, it's. I don't want to go full boat like this is the the, the origins of, of PKK, but it plays a role. And then by 74, you also have Kurdish university students willing to take up, um, take up the cause as they are being represented. Under the Ankara Democratic Patriotic Association of Higher Education. The reason that's important is, again, education is, to now quote uh, a very gross document called The Crisis of Democracy, is the most important value producing uh, entity uh, in a society, right? And if you can get Kurdish language, Kurdish stories, folk folklore, like we talked about in the last episode, back into the education system. Um, you are now trying to stop the erasure of this group of people. So that's they are important measures. There was a demand and a, a demand for the recognition of Kurdish culture and language. These students then expanded their movement and began to involve themselves with other leftist parties in Turkey, not not specifically related to the Kurdish question, just leftist parties, which, like I said, are being suppressed under the Cold War War auspices of of NATO um, and the Turkish government. Originally, these groups, and Ocalan talks about it, aimed for a Kurdish Marxist republic out of Kurdistani Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. So basically there is a goal here to unite all the fragmented Kurdish people in those four different states in a Kurdish Marxist republic. Now Nick already kind of uh, uh, uh, hinted at why a a Marxist-Leninist republic might be appealing to uh to oppressed peoples um and specifically for Iraqi Kurdistan in our last episode but I want a recap if there's any new thoughts on this again why this this this uh I don't don't want to use attachment uh of the of the Marxist um ideal as a possible solution to this type of marginalization? Because the marginalization that Marx is talking about, especially, is class-based. We already know that. like, like We don't even have to dig into that. But why this type of oppression?
1: Well, I think if you are a group of people living nowadays in the type of circumstances that the Kurds are living in in this region of the world, there are basically two options for your quote-unquote liberation. You can fully accept and submit to industrialization and global capitalism or you can adopt a marxist mindset and very clearly they have zero desire to become global capitalists and probably like i want to give them credit realize that that's not going to lead to their liberation it's obviously not it doesn't lead to anyone's liberation spoiler alert like that's not a thing so you're basically left with the most popular liberatory ideology of the past centuries, the Marxist ideology. I mean, that's basically what you're left with, and it's very, very appealing, obviously.
0: Right. In Iraq, we know that there was some influence because of the Republic of Mahabad, and it's it's being propped up by the Soviet Union. So there's definitely a, even a more of a close connection there, and we must, you know, definitely see. There's going to be some connections here as, as news uh, travels around, around this region
1: relatively easily. Anyway. Well, and you already talked about how the Kurds in Iraq tried their hand at global capitalism and it failed miserably. Oh, yeah. yeah
0: the Infanta-style yeah. opening. Uh, and that was recently. That was late 90s, right? Like under the uh, KRG, right? So, yeah. Okay. I mean,
1: their lifestyle d- doesn't lend itself to anything other than some kind of Marxist liberation. Just, sure. They're not industrial capitalists. That's not a thing.
0: On November 27th of 1978, as we kind of move forward in our story, uh, officially founded was the Patiya Karkeren Kurdistani. And again, excuse my pronunciation, um, but essentially that is the PKK, roughly translating as the Kurdistani Workers' Party, right? The PKK is founded in 1978 near Diyarbakir. Near Twenty-two leaders took part in its inaugural meeting to set up, a more, profe- to set up more professional structures for this new uh, Kurdish Marxist movement. They immediately clashed with Turkish security forces, armed tribesmen of the Kurdish aristocracy, and rival political groups. So the PKK is founded in 78, and I want to kind of like emphasize this. There are 22 leaders that take part in this meeting from all different parts of the region. One of the things they decide to do, though, is obviously they're going to clash with Turkish security forces. Those are the oppressors. This is the one that that is interesting, and I want your commentary on They also decide they are going to clash with armed tribesmen of their own aristocracy. Hmm. What do you think of that?
1: I mean, I think if you're after after liberation from oppression, you have to fight oppression on all fronts. So why do you think there even is a Kurdish aristocracy? What do we see
0: oftentimes in these colonial projects— there's oftentimes co-optation by the oppressing power. that yeah, They're, they're always... put in
1: power by the colonizers.
0: Perfect. I think that's one of those things that we see. And it kind of reveals that there is even a little bit of fracturing within, like, the Kurdish communities. Um, And by September 12th of 1980, or by, I should say, on September 12th of 1980, there is an opportunity that is presented. A uh, Turkish historians or Middle Eastern historians will know this is a very famous Turkish military coup. Uh coup. I can't believe I just said that coup that makes matters even worse um, for the Kurds. It presents an opportunity. We know that when there was transitions in power in Iraq, as we learned in the last episode, that the Kurds there were able to kind of seize the moment, although it didn't always work out for them. Here, this opportunity actually makes matters worse. Why would a Turkish military coup be worse than like the Ramadan revolution in Iraq for
1: an oppressed group? Well, because in Iraq specifically, they could fight against the party that was oppressing them. Here, I mean, I'm looking at a map right now on my computer screen of the region. It's not as they're fighting four different regions. So they can't just target all of their forces to the Turkish government and try to eke out something for themselves. That would be too much of a focusing of their efforts, I would assume.
0: And the military crackdown that takes place with a military coup because it becomes a military state, right? Like that's that's what happens with the, with the military coup uh, that takes place in, in Ankara. Um, the, all PKK cadre, cadres uh, that remained in Turkey were rounded up and imprisoned, right? It became like that, that was the solution, which in some ways was even harsher than prior regimes, right? immediately imprisoned so the fighter's choice at this moment in time like if you're a PKK fighter your choice at this moment in time in 1980 and and throughout the early 80s was either uh, leave flee and enter into an exile organization or form a modern national liberation movement like those are your two real choices now some did leave and joined exile organizations and this is where it gets complex right some are going to cross the border into Syria some are going to be in in Iraq and mingle uh, with the Kurds that we already got done talking about last episode uh, very uh, well and this is also coinciding with the iran iraq war that we talked about last episode as well which has destabilized the region and making some of this dare i say a region at war is an easy place to live it is not that would be an asinine statement but the destabilization does facilitate people moving from border to border like it does help in that regard at least to a small degree um they established they eventually decided to establish the first training camps the military training camps because the PKK is going to be militant first training camps in 1982 in all four states that was the goal to try and establish training camps in all four states um and then all camps eventually find themselves over and, and fast forwarding quite a bit here end up in Iraq in 1998. That's interesting if we think about it, given that we also know that the PKK and Peshmergas and other groups do have somewhat of a rivalry, so the fact that they were all in Iraq, uh, at least briefly, at least the training camps were there, says that uh, maybe because of common cause, they were willing to put aside differences. I mean, again, the theories are, are somewhat suspect, but it's what we have. By 98 in Iraq, they had a fully functioning enclave in the Kanduil Mountains. Um, They had storage facilities. They had uh, reconnaissance centers. They had communication centers. And the arm resistance uh, begins – I fast-forwarded in 98, I guess, just so I could get both of these things out here. The camps start in 82, but they eventually all come together in 98. But I'm going to go back in time now. The armed resistance of the PKK begins with attacks specifically on military facilities in Irah uh, and Smadili in uh, August of 1984. Eventual military tactics and guerrilla warfare once uh, begin to start once Abdullah Ocalan rises to prominence in the PKK. So I'm going to pause here for a second because it was kind of a mouthful and I kind of want to recap here. The PKK is formed in 78. A Turkish military coup takes place in, in 1980, and it makes life even worse on the PKK. Many of them exile, many of them form modern liberation movements. They establish training camps all the way back in 82 and four states. Eventually, they all end up in Iraq, uh, which I'll skip again for now. But then they their first targets are military facilities in 1984. So it seems like the strategy is pretty obvious, but why attack these military facilities to begin with? Because other movements that are often accused of the T word, as we've already talked about in this episode, wouldn't necessarily strike the military targets. They would be doing the – they would be striking public targets or cultural targets to make the biggest – biggest waves but this this actually kind of flies in the in the face of maybe being accused of terrorism they see this as a military campaign what do you think Yeah, i mean
1: that's a solid military tactic i agree yeah yeah
0: again a true terrorist organization would do something whatever spectacular in a, in a market or something along those lines but i mean like yeah
1: attacking yeah you nailed it attacking a public market is an ideological warfare right you're getting on the news you're etc attacking a military targets is a military tactic that's military warfare
0: mm. Um, and then Abdul, uh, Abdullah Ocalan, as I just mentioned, who we've already read, read a little bit from, his thoughts on this, he rises to prominence during these uh, guerrilla warfare – during the guerrilla warfare campaigns of the 1980s. Um, the prime minister at the, uh, at the time, the uh, Turkish prime minister, Ozzel, uh sent 5,000 troops to deal with what he called terrorists. Uh, and of course that word is thrown out almost immediately. Now let's stop for just a second. Why? Why the word? Why, why do we just throw that word around?
1: And we use it anytime we want to degrade and denigrate any kind of movement that's going on. Okay, it's but what does it violence. mean for
0: like the listener? Like if you're a Turkish citizen and you hear this word or an American – shoot, even here in the United States, you hear that word. doesn't matter who it's associated with.
1: I mean it immediately illegitimizes anything that's going on. Any kind of efforts and it paints them as an enemy to whatever state is making this message.
0: So this might even speak in a way to the power of language that Ochilan was talking about earlier. Like this is the role that language can play in the manufacture
1: of the other. Um, And we see it over and over again. So again – Which like it should be no news to anyone that if we define a terrorist as someone that uses violence to get political aims, every state is a terrorist organization.
0: Right, and the state propaganda at the time used this term. They were called a handful of bandits, which is kind of interesting, the the, the the use of the word bandit. I'm not sure if the the the Turkish to English translation is as good as it can be there, but a handful of bandits kind of also brings up this imagery of people that are trying to do something quote unquote illegitimate uh, to a legitimate state power, which we already know. Like it, It's questionable at best whether the state power is legitimate.
1: It also makes you, like the numbers come into question, like a handful of bandits is like five guys running around the mountains. Right, you know yeah. I mean? Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, by the nineteen nineties, the statements by uh, Prime Minister Özil and eventually President uh, Demiro indicated that they might recognize the Kurdish identity to ease tensions. So, the basically to kind of recap, the eighties are basically just guerrilla warfare against Turkish security forces or Turkish military targets. I don't know that. I mean, I could give specific examples, but I don't know that that's fruitful. What we're trying to do here is not a not a military history podcast. Um, but basically, this guerrilla warfare and protracted guerrilla warfare is very important. Now we can uh, we can cite uh, uh, uh, Ernesto Che Guevara and his thoughts on guerrilla warfare and its effects, which I may or may not. I actually don't know if Ocalan ever even quotes him or cites him, but I would have to imagine at some point it had some sort of influence, again, in Marxist organization at that time. Or a Mao. Or a Mao. Oh, Mao is a perfect one. Thank you. Um, yeah, they had some sort of impact on the ideology of the PKK at that moment in time. Anyway, it was enough that this protracted warfare led Ocal and uh, Demero to indicate that they might— recognize Kurdish identity to
1: ease tension. So like, there's a carrot dangled. Like let's, let, there's a carrot dangled to stop basically the violence. Which I think is funny because just by making that statement, you already acknowledged it. I, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> indeed.
0: Um, to strengthen the process, this carrot is dangled and it works. The PKK orders a ceasefire in 1993 because this carrot was dangled. Um, unfortunately, the prime minister at the time died, Otsul, who had been making some of these promises. He dies, and it hurts the momentum from the Turkish side, even after the PKK declared the ceasefire. And between 1994 and 1998, the PKK attempted ceasefires. Um, Unfortunately, uh, at that time, and and, and looking at it through Ocalan's eyes, the state insisted on a military solution. So after Otsul dangles this carrot and then passes away, Uh, We have this chance to settle this dispute uh, diplomatically. The state immediately goes back into military mode. Why do you think a state would do that after perhaps a leader passed away? Is there a connection there or is it just a happenstance that the state decided to change directions?
1: I think there's probably – I don't know enough about the history of the politics there, but there's definitely got to be a connection that like – it's also opportune, right? Like, we dangle this carrot, they have a ceasefire, the dude dies. Now that they have a ceasefire, we can pounce on the opportunity and go back to a military solution. Right. Yeah. During this time,
0: Ocalan goes on a trip to Europe as the chairman of the PKK, um, basically to promote a political solution. So at this point, Ocalan is also willing, at least in at least in, in in words, willing to stand by the ceasefire and seek a political slash diplomatic solution. So he begins to travel around Europe. Put yourself in Ocalan's shoes during this time. You basically spent the better part of a decade performing guerrilla warfare. Um, looking at it through a, a, a Marxist lens, probably adopting some of the ideals of a Ernesto Che Guevara regarding your tactics or a, a Mao. Um, and then all of a sudden, after the ceasefire and the death of a prime minister, of which you might have been able to work with him, you then go on this campaign throughout Europe as a chairman. What do you think his goal was?
1: I mean, for sure, it's got to be to get allies and recognition and try to explain the plight of the Kurdish people. And we know Turkey's
0: also looking for what with Europe. One of the biggest things in the Turkish uh, situation over the last like two, three decades at this point is Turkey trying to get in, at least it was, it's much less so now as of 2019, but for a while, get completely immersed in the EU. Mm. And if you can get EU allies looking at you for uh, looking at uh, Ochelon and the PKK in a certain way, that's going to do a lot to support your argument if then they dangle the carrot to Turkey. Hey,
1: settle this if you want in on the EU. You're creating a global Kurdish problem. It's no longer just a problem for Turkey. Such now a it's good a problem tactic. for everyone. Yeah.
0: yeah, such a good tactic. He was captured, unfortunately, um, during this during his travels uh, after he ended up in Nairobi. Uh, one of the ways he was flying around is he wasn't just flying in Europe. He made his way, of course, into sub-Saharan Africa, Kenya. And he's captured in Nairobi by the Turkish National Intelligence Organization. And I must stress this. Turkish National Intelligence Organization, and this is from Ocalan's perspective, had the help of the United States CIA. What the hell does the CIA care about this for? What do you think? What do they care about any of this shit? Like, for the history they are of the just organization? They just, yeah. just in the middle of everything, right? Always. Um... In this case, I would say part of it might be some leftover red scare thing. Some because ca- again, like at this point in time, we're we're we're past like full blown like you know we're past the Cold War at this point in time. But I, I just I don't know. Seems kind of questionable. Um. All right, moving forward though, with the help of the CIA, Ochilan ends up uh, uh, imprisoned, and this is one of the most interesting things when you when you look up Abdullah Ochilan. He is held, like right now, to this day, in solitary, quote unquote, confinement, uh, as the only prisoner on Imrali Island, uh, Imrali Island in the Sea of Marmara. So like he has his own island, like that's how dangerous the Turkish state thinks Ocalan is in terms of his ideas, his charisma, his ability to lead. And he has 1000 Turkish military guards on that island with him.
1: Although I did read recently, like, did I, it change? I don't know how recently, yeah, they Since actually rec- shipped more prisoners out to the island, so he's not oh, okay. by himself anymore.
0: So I need an update on my, mm-hmm. on, my on my, on my research notes here. Um, regardless, we can make that, we can make that update, but the fact that he was there for so long by himself, surrounded by all these guards, I mean, I mean, this is, that, that those are levels that, that, that nobody's seen. I mean, we don't, Nelson Mandela on Robin Island. That's not even, no, that's not, that's not how that went. So what do you think they're terrified of? Because this one man, he might be a shrewd military commander in terms of guerrilla tactics, and he probably proved that. But I don't think that's why he's there. What do you think... What what What is he
1: doing there?
0: Or was he doing there by himself and now with a I think this is
1: a weird, like, gray area. If he was actually the leader of a terrorist organization, they would have just disappeared him. If he was the leader of a quote-unquote legitimate separatist movement somewhere, then they would have either not been able to imprison him or they would have imprisoned him with other people in some other less secure location. Because he's existing in this gray area and they have zero idea how to treat him and the movement, this is the safest thing that they can do that's not going to get them on the radar of like a United Nations or something. That's what I think.
0: No, that makes sense. The charges, the official charges against him are treason and separatism. He's sentenced to death initially, but eventually, of course, as, as we just got done talking about, commuted to life imprisonment back in
1: 2002.
0: So uh, initially, he was going to die for this. But for what you just outlined, that would not be the best solution.
1: Um, Especially like you mentioned, Turkey and their goals of EU inclusion, etc. You can't just go off offing people if that's really what you want to be. Right. You know
0: political prisoners since 2011 lawyers are, again and now maybe i need an update based on what you told me lawyers were not allowed um to visit him and then between 2014 and 2016 he was banned from all visits and then again between 2016 and 2019 so he's been banned from even having visitors numerous times mm-hmm. he's uh engaged in constant hunger strikes and not he Followers of him have engaged in constant hunger strikes and protests. A good example of this happened in 2007 when 949 um, supporters were convicted for calling him esteemed. They use that word that he is an esteemed leader, and they are convicted uh, of treason for calling him esteemed. 949 people
1: arrested. How did – did they all write a book together or something? How did I, I just, they – get-
0: that, they're, they're at a protest. Oh, God. Yeah, okay. that's – Yeah. In 2006, another movement does form. It is uh, the rise of the Kurdish Freedom Hawks. These are separatists that are different than the PKK, although there's likely again under the under the table some crossover. These are separatists that seek an individual state. These are state builders, which again Ocalan and it's iffy if that's a, at least to this point if that's a thing. We know later he's not, but um they claim responsibility for attacks on resorts. So they are what they they fit the definition of what the PKK have been called way more clearly. The reason that's important is they're still Kurdish. They're still trying to fight for a state, but they're damaging PKK efforts. Because again, the average Turkish, Turkish population, and then of course, Westerners that might be watching this are going to associate the two. They don't know the difference. So also during this time, and the imprisonment is wildly important. In fact, we're going to spend a little bit of time on the imprisonment of Ocalan. The change in ideology, this is what happens while Ocalan is in prison. And again, how much of this is, is, is reaching the, the, the masses that, that are looking to him as esteemed or whatever? I mean, a decent amount. Like I said, we could jump online and find all of these documents. So basically, I'm willing to, but anybody could. Translated huh. to English right. Here's the thing. I'm going to put it in his words about this transition again, and this is when he at least and perhaps the movement itself, maybe listening to him, move away from that more traditional Marxist Leninism regarding liberation and begin to seek something different. And so I'm going to read directly from him. He says, doubtless, my abduction was a heavy blow for the PKK. It was nonetheless not the reason for the ideological and political cut. The PKK had been conceived as a party with a state-like hierarchical structure similar to other parties. Such a structure, however, causes a dialectic contradiction to the principles of democracy, freedom, and equality. A contradiction in principle concerning all parties whatsoever, their philosophy. Think, comment on that. Because you're going to give us here democratic confederalism in depth in a minute. But this is even before that.
1: So what do you think? I mean, philosophically, that's super legit. Whether or not. We can argue, we can debate forever whether it's effective for, like, a revolutionary movement. But philosophically, like, that is sound. You can't have a hierarchical, very rigid hierarchical organization if the goal for, if your goal for society is something that is non-hierarchical. I mean, that's just, that's, yeah, it's good. Although the PKK stood for freedom-oriented views, we had not
0: been able to free ourselves from thinking in hierarchical structures – Another main contradiction lay in the PKK's quest for institutional political power, which formed and aligned the party correspondingly. Structures aligned along the lines of institutional power, however, are in conflict with societal democratization, which the PKK was declaredly espousing. That's fire. Mm-hmm. Like this is where we see this idea, and you're going to have to give me the term again from our R&R class, where they're trying to basically model in the revolution what they hope to create.
1: Prefiguration.
0: Love it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes. And we can see what they're trying to do, and he's saying – and it's very rare. We see this all the time with revolutionaries where they're willing to go back. I mean Che did it in in, in the Cuban economy and stuff like that, where they're willing to go back – and and actually look at their faults and learn from them. Think about that in terms of these revolutionary parties and what they're fighting for, and then contrast that with the state. States never admit their mistake. We just learned that with the, the, the, the Turkish ethically constitutive story of the Kurds. They will not go back and look at the errors of their ways. We know damn well we live in a state that refuses to acknowledge any of its past transgressions. And even when it does, it does so only in the least... The most toothless way possible, like, ah, oh, here's a cute little month to celebrate some oppressed peoples, ah, oh, whatever. Like, I mean, it is, it's, it's a, it's a fucking joke.
1: As minimally as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I would argue that that's probably why revolutionary movements very often can be successful in the face of a state and extreme oppression is because they can be so malleable, like on the fly, they can change. Whereas a state to its detriment is so concrete, and just like you said, the example of the United States or whatever, will never go back. Once they've picked a history and they've picked a narrative, they will only ever very minutely modify in tiny little iterations the narrative to make accommodations for like some change or something that needs to happen to keep people happy. But a revolutionary movement can change drastically at the drop of a hat for whatever it needs.
0: Right. In U.S. history, Vine Deloria called it, what, the cameo theory. Oh, we got a little more PC now. Maybe we'll mention at least there were indigenous people that existed. We won't say how many or really what happened to them, but uh, here's a play in kindergarten. See, they're there, right? Like that counts. That's something, right? But we're not really willing to deal with the gravity of it.
1: Yeah, Because they would bring into question the entire validity of the state and its history. Indeed. Real, sociali- real socialism
0: and social democracy as well as national liberation movements when they try to set up social conceptions beyond capitalism could not free themselves from the ide- ideological constraints of the capitalist system. They became pillars of the capitalist system while only seeking institutional political power instead of putting their focus on the democratization of society. The use of armed force can only be justified for the purpose of necessary self-defense. Anything going beyond that would be in violation of the socially emancipative pro- approach that the PKK felt itself obliged to since all repressive regimes in history had been based on war and aligned their institutions according to the logic of warfare there 's a lot in there first and foremost we didn 't spend a lot of time when we talked about Iraqi Kurdistan um, outlining like the role of capitalism. I mean like it kind of was like there like, when we talked about the Infita or the fact that some of the ideology there was marxist Leninists. But Ochelon goes straight deep into this. What is the role of capitalism, in your opinion, in national constructs? That's a loaded question, and I don't want you to have to go off for like 45 minutes or something. Yeah. But, but He
1: talks about this extensively in yeah. Democratic and Federalism too. Yeah, I think they're one and the same at this point, at this point in modernity.
0: Okay. What do you think it is about that that that that capital mindset of these states that—
1: I will say it hasn't always been like that, but I think nowadays it is.
0: Yeah, well, so that's my point. What do you think it is about the, the, these states with this, this affinity and attachment to, to this ideology, capitalism, in informing the way they treat subjected peoples?
1: Because, I mean, it's all about profit. And if your sole goal is profit, then you don't even give a shit about peoples. It doesn't matter. You're going to exploit them in any way that you possibly can.
0: Because the idea is competitive advantage, right? Like we're trying to achieve that competitive advantage. If you want to – shoot, we'll even pick on the U.S. because that's what we like to do sometimes. Um, here, right, if you can remove 51% of the population from the founding, right, right from the get-go, from having a real vested stake in, in the market, and you can do that by suppressing their political voices, i.e. women in this case – Right there, fifty one percent of the population is not just removed from political influence, they're removed from market influence, mm-hmm. right? They do not compete with the men of society. they did not compete when Carnegie rose to prominence. They weren't allowed to compete when Rockefeller rose to prominence, and that's way later on down the line that's hundred that's over a hundred years later so and that
1: none of those men achieve anything that they had without the women taking care of the va- a huge part of the economy, which was in the home and the children and et cetera, et cetera.
0: For those that are wondering why I use that specific example regarding uh, uh, uh, women's roles, well, uh, a movement in Rojava is actually going to tackle that one. That's why I thought that was a pretty apt example. Um, okay, the second part that, that I wanted to unpack from that last part of the quote, this violence. He is willing to forego some of the violence at this point after, again, leading military campaigns throughout the 80s. Uh, this is...
1: I'm so fascinated with this when I was reading about this. This whole, like, ochelons I don't want to say 180, because it's not a full reversal, but his modification of his theory is fascinating. And like you said, I think it's commendable to be able to change... It's funny, because I also read a bunch of critiques of, like, the Ochelon's movement. They actually hold this against him and said that, say that this is basically a cop-out. That in the middle of the movement, he just began to go back and forth based on whatever he thought would be successful, which is fine. I don't, I don't know enough about it to, that's someone, that's one person's opinion and that's fine. But to be able to look at what's going on and say, you know what, maybe this is wrong, whether you're saying it from an ethical perspective or from a political perspective, it doesn't really matter. But to be able to say, hey, the world is not going to see us in a good light, or this is morally incorrect, we need to make sure that we are only using violence in the case of self-defense, I think that... I think that he is on to something, obviously.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's no coincidence that, again, War and Peace in Kurdistan comes out in 2012, what I've, I've been quoting. Um, and then peace talks themselves resume between the PKK. He's still, of course, locked up, but peace talks began to resume in, in, 2000, in, in 2013 and uh, led to many of the PKK moving to Iraqi Kurdistan while a lot of the others went to Syria um, during, of course, the Syrian civil war. Um, which is interesting. The Kurds in Syria established control over their own region with the help of both. This is interesting. And sometimes they work together. Sometimes they didn't. There is a rivalry, but of both the PKK and from the prior episode, the aforementioned KRG, which of course is the Kurdistani regional government in Iraq being led by at that time Barzani. Although again, he is, he's since stepped down. Also, like the Peshmergas, the PKK has engaged Islamic State over and over again in Syria and Iraq and helped thousands of ethnic and religious minorities escape, uh, foremost of which would be like the the Yazidis. The Turkish government during this time, however, used the excuse of the war on IS, because they were engaged with with NATO allies fighting IS. They used the excuse of war against IS, the Islamic State, to bomb Kurdish camps, this is often overlooked in the news, is that the Kurds or the, the, the Turks would accidentally, while they're fighting IS, also accidentally maybe bomb a Kurdish encampment um, and locales. And they were doing this throughout 2014 and 2015, which officially for the PKK, I must stress this, broke the ceasefire. That has broken the ceasefire, and the ceasefire as of right now, to the best of my knowledge, is still broken with well, the yeah, Turkish state. Once
1: they start bombing, and, right?
0: Yeah, and it follows Ochelan's idea there. Violence immediately erupted on the border between Turkey and Syria, um, uh, between thousands of Turkish military per- personnel and thousands of PK, excuse me, thousands of PKK and hundreds of Turkish, uh, military and, uh, uh, security forces have died since 2015 as the conflict is still raging as we're doing this, this podcast. And I'm not sure again, maybe I need to do some follow-up here. Uh, I haven't looked into anything in the last couple of months, but maybe I need to do some follow-up here and see how things are coming along. But it's important to understand like the ideology behind this that's what we wanted to focus on because the PKK for us and it shows kind of where our our sympathies lie in this this regard our, the PKK and what they were able to eventually establish in rojava um is more along the lines of both myself and Nick's bias of what we see working in the crafting of a stateless society than what was established by the KRG in Iraq. It's not that we want to denigrate again what happened in in Iraq. It was wildly oppressive again, amidst so much turmoil, numerous regime changes, chemical warfare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but as far as like what's been established, I think this is a good segue for Nick to now take the lead and explain to us, at least in Ochelon's words, through democratic confederalism what they, they, they tried to and have some and successfully established in Syria. So again, I, I'll, I'll make this connection. Kurds in Turkey, Kurds from Turkey, i.e. PKK, Kurds from Iraq, i.e. KRG Peshmergas, made their way into Syria during the civil war, seeing another opportunity at, at, at, at a fractured state to help the Kurds there establish autonomy. That's where we're kind of leaving off. Now, I want to focus heavily ideologically on what the PKK is bringing to the table. And that's where Ochalan comes in with his more uh, in depth work uh, called Democratic Confederalism. I mean, I have my own notes on it, but I think at this point it's better to bring the sociologist
1: in and have him kind of outline this. So, just like you discussed, they're coming from a Marxist perspective, a state, basically state socialism. Um, that's where they start their efforts. That's the ideology that informs them. Like you said, Ocalan gets imprisoned, and the story goes that while he's in prison, he starts to read Murray Bookchin. Um, we actually did a whole episode, a few episodes back on communalism, um, which is Bookchin's idea that it's not really anarchist, and it's not socialist. It's a different thing, which we debated in the that episode. So go check that episode out uh, if you want some more on communalism. But Ochelan starts reading Bookchin's work. Um, by the way, it's sometimes referred to as communalism or uh, libertarian, municipalism, etc. We use all those terms in that episode and kind of explain a little bit more. So listen to that for the specifics of Bookchin's ideology. But Ochelan starts reading this, and he basically, the story goes at least, he has a change of heart. And he starts to abandon traditional Marxism, and he starts to adopt what he coins democratic confederalism, which is essentially... A modification, uh, really. Most people say it's actually that Bookchin's communalism at Liber, uh, yeah, that Bookchin's communalism is sort of a broad theory and that. Ochelon's Democratic and Federalism is basically like more specifically how you would put that into practice, specifically applied to the Curtis situation. So rather than go through some lengthy quotes of this whole work, because the entire thing is it's pretty good. And it touches on a lot of things Jared's already said about nation states, et cetera. But he has um, we'll link to this work on page 33. He lists the principles of Democratic and Federalism. There are five of them. So I'm just going to read those. And that'll tell us a lot about what Ochelan's after here. Number 1. The right of self-determination of the peoples includes the right to a state of their own. However, the foundation of a state does not increase the freedom of the people. The system of the United Nations that is based on nation-states has remained inefficient. Meanwhile, nation-states have become serious obstacles for any social development. Democratic confederalism is the contrasting paradigm of the oppressed people. So right off the bat, he's saying we're abandoning our effort for a nation state because it's inefficient, et cetera, and it does not lead to more freedom. So what do you think about that?
0: Well, I mean, I kind of, I mean, like you said, we've kind of covered some of this and it makes 100% sense. Like if this is your new goal and you have this new vision and you clearly through trial and effort, through study, through all of these things, realize what the state is, establishment of a state would be establishing everything you don't believe in.
1: 100%. Number two. Democratic confederalism is a non-state social paradigm. It is not controlled by a state. At the same time, democratic confederalism is the cultural organizational blueprint of a democratic nation. So there's two things here. It is a non-state social paradigm. And as I just discussed super briefly a few minutes ago, that is so key because it's so hard for us now to have a discourse that does not involve the formation or the deconstruction or the modification of a state. Um, This is a non-state social paradigm, so that's clear from the get-go. And then he says, it's a blueprint of a democratic nation. So it's not a state, but it is a nation, and it is democratic. And this is key for democratic confederalism, uh, which we talked about in the last episode, how there were hints of this before in the Kurdish movements. He's after a full democracy with, from the bottom up, people having power to elect their leaders and to vote and have a voice in their day-to-day activities and the organization uh, of their society. So any thoughts on that?
0: I mean, not a lot. Like I said, I mean, we've kind of covered it over the last uh, uh, now two episodes. Uh, We're partway through this one or almost, you know, whatever. Yeah, like, I mean, 100% uh, democratic is something that many of the movements have tried, both in Iraq and and Turkey, as we've kind of talked about, and then achieved thus far in Syria, Um. It makes perfect sense with the vision, the change in the vision of what they're trying to accomplish at this point. The last thing you want to do, and I mentioned it in the last time you, whatever, in the last comment, is emulate your oppressor um, in regards to what you're trying to produce. You might be able to mirror them a little bit regarding whatever, military tactics or something like that. But if you're going to create something new, you need to, of course, come up with something that actually does apply the values that you have set forth, uh, at least in your documentation. You need to practice those.
1: Yeah. Okay, number three, and there's a lot of book chin in this one. Democratic confederalism is based on grassroots participation. Its decision-making processes lie with the communities. Higher levels only serve the coordination and implementation of the will of the communities that send their delegates to the general assemblies. For limited space of time, they are both mouthpieces and executive institutions. However, the basic power of decision rests with the local grassroots institutions. And as we discussed in communalism... This is what Bookchin is all about. Local grassroots assemblies, assemblies of the people making decisions, and that only the delegates get sent from those assemblies, and it goes up on the board. But at the very local level, grassroots people having conversations and uh, having democratic processes about what their societies are going to be, and that's key in both communalism and democratic and federalism.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, even our our, our quote-unquote – older groups that we talked about when we were referencing indigenous peoples and so on and so forth had very similar structures we would never use the language democratic confederalism to lay out what it was but again it seems almost well the word is natural but it seems like the most logical way to frame a society like again a society that is going to seek to be as equitable as possible for its members
1: yeah i was going to say that's the one of the least oppressive ways that you could organize a society right everyone having an equal voice
0: yeah i mean at least a society of any scale right i mean you could probably do a little better if you're running around with a group of like you know 10 people bandits like we learned yeah whatever
1: (laughs) democratic bandits that's our next movement (laughs) number four t-shirt in the middle east democracy cannot be imposed by the capitalist system and its imperial powers which only damage democracy Propagation of grassroots democracy is elementary. It is the only approach that can cope with diverse eth- ethnic, ethnical groups, religions, and class differences. It also goes together well with the traditional Confederate structure of the society. So there's a couple of things here. The first, in the Middle East, democracy cannot be imposed by the capitalist system because the capitalist system only damages democracy. Above in this document, he talks about extensively the history of attempted democracy throughout the Middle East and various manifestations and how it's always the imposition of capitalism that corrupts this democratic system. So I, I don't think we need to discuss that. He's no, definitely on the same No, I mean,
0: 100% agree. Uh, A, those Western democracies are not democracies themselves. they are serious bastardizations of such and, and should not dare call themselves that. Um, and then secondly, to then impose that upon other groups is the least democratic thing you can do to begin with and then do so by using an economic system that promotes inequity and competition. There's nothing... Uh, I mean, it's one of the most asinine things we've done in the Western world is somehow equate democratic values with a system that creates haves and have-nots. That makes no sense. We have a political system of equality wed to an economic system of inequality. Dumb. Just fucking
1: dumb. (laughs) Um, And the last sentence of this section is key because this is him taking Bookchin's communalism and applying it directly to the Curtis situation. He says it, being democracy, is the only approach that can cope with diverse ethnical groups, religions, and class differences. So he says that this system and democracy itself is the only thing that can cope with the fact that in the Kurdish territory there are different religions, there's different ethnicities, there's different classes, etc. Everyone can be equal under democracy. So this is a system where everyone can have power, and it's not based on citizenship of a certain country or anything like that, that anyone there in a democracy under this confederalism can have a voice, which is key. Number five, democratic confederalism in Kurdistan is an anti-nationalist movement as well. It aims at realizing the right of self-defense of the peoples by advancement of democracy in all parts of Kurdistan without questioning the existing political borders. So I'll stop there and then we'll read the last sentence. So by implementing democratic confederalism, it can be done with no consideration of any of the borders of which they're dealing with of these four other states that exist in the area. So they don't have to eke out their own autonomous nation state. They can implement this democratic confederalism with no concern over where the borders lie whatsoever, because you don't have to be a citizen of their autonomous region. You don't have to be a citizen of Iraq or Turkey, etc. Anyone can take part uh, that is in this area in their democratic confederalism democracy, and everyone can have a voice equally, which is hugely important. And then last sentence here on number five, its goal is not the foundation of a Kurdish nation state. The movement intends to establish federal structures in Iran, Turkey, Syria, and Iraq that are, are that are open for all Kurds and at the same time form an umbrella confederation for all four parts of Kurdistan. So exactly how all of the groups and all of these nation states are going to be included under this uh, structure of federations and under the democratic system that is democratic confederalism. So we could go at length into the rest of this document, but those five principles basically fully lay out exactly what he's trying to accomplish once he has this change of heart away from Marxism.
0: Yeah, and that last part, right, that that that kind of anti-nationalism stance. Um is wildly important for what they're they're trying to create, and like I said, at least in Rojava so far, um, successfully created. It's it's important to when you uh when one when one wants to create some sort of other society. And we'll we'll see this in even some of the the less uh, the, the other examples we use is to create. You delegitimize the existing discourse and its material practitioners, the system, by merely creating—merely existing and creating something else leads to the delegitimization. So, and which is kind of funny, like, I mean, uh, I mean, Turkey itself probably could have learned this lesson, right? Like, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk just started—he didn't just start, it took a lot of work, but whatever—he ended up starting a new government in Ankara, which merely rivaled the existing government in Istanbul, and slowly but surely that rival earned the legitimacy—
1: I also want to stress, maybe specify a little more. This isn't a full abandonment uh, of Marxism. It is, however, a full abandonment of Leninism. So this is not, there are no conversations of like a revolutionary vanguard or anything like that. This is a revolution from below. This is giving power directly to the people. So that's where I think the delineation between the initial ideology and the uh, latter ideology lies.
0: Well and we've we're starting to see it in
1: practice. I mean like we see it as
0: of September 18th the autonomous administration of North and East and, North and East Syria established itself and aside from the groups that are already working the PKK the KRG everybody we've laid out there are, here are the organizations specifically working in Syria that I think we see this democratic confederalism um working its way Well, these are representatives of the Democratic Confederalism. Right now, we have the People's Defense Units, uh, the YPG. We have the Women's Defense Units, the YPJ. And they all operate, to the best of my knowledge, under the PYD, the Democratic Union Party. These are the more acronyms being thrown at our listeners here, but these are the organizations doing now the heavy lifting in Rojava. So the PKK in and KRG may have some inspiration, may also be helping, but now these organizations are really the ones doing the heavy lifting um, in, in North and East Syria. And usually uh, we would be tempted to do a complete layout of their society, um, but we they're basically following what we see, what Nick just went off or read off of in uh, Ochelon's democratic confederalism, and one of the things we also want to do is promote the idea that these people doing this hard work—these um, men, women, all of them—working very hard to enact democratic and federalism should have the right to speak for themselves on this regard. So in this, in that spirit, we both intentionally neglected to prepare anything specifically on Rojava and instead want to direct our listeners' attention to representatives of Ro- Rojava speaking for themselves. Rather than coming through our privileged mouthpieces here in the West, we would rather have them speak for themselves. So I do want to give uh, credit where it's due. We have two sources we plan on using in class. I'll, I'll, I'll, if you look at these, you'll find other connected sources that will help help uh, help our audience understand what's actually taking place and what they've been able to create in Rojava. But the first that I want to direct uh, our audience to is if you go onto YouTube and you type in Rojava, Kurdish autonomy and radical democracy, you will see a video that is about 18 minutes long. And it is published by Black Coffee Collective Presents. And in this this basic explanation, what we have here is them interviewing uh, uh, representation from Rojava. And again, rather than have Nick or myself explain it because this is now a a living and existing thing that is happening right now as we, we speak, we think it's better to let these these groups of people speak for themselves. So that would be the first one we highly recommend looking at. And then for a little bit different view and you'll have to emphasize more on the interviews or the interviewees rather than the interviewers. If you jump on YouTube right now and look at a rare, this is what you would type, a rare look inside the Kurdish rebel movement, PKK, war on all fronts. It will also, uh, that one's a little bit older, 2015 on that one, but it shows what the PKK was able to do again through their eyes. Um, what they were able to accomplish when they entered into Syria and establishing um, a zone for Rojava to to basically rise to prominence.
1: And if you go to our website, we'll embed both of those videos, the YouTube videos on our website in the show notes for this episode, too, so you can find them directly there. I also want to mention, while those are the five principles for Ocalan's democratic confederalism, he has basically four pillars that they are trying to attack and to construct anew in their society. Uh, the first one is it's anti-capitalistic, obviously, for reasons that we just listed. The second one is a huge emphasis on self-determination and democracy, which we emphasized. A third one, which is key, is it is anti-patriarchal. And I cannot stress that enough. And he goes in extensively to what that means for the movement and fully why it is required in this document. And basically says that, the oppressive capitalism and the oppressive patriarchy cannot be separated um, one from the other, that both of them must be attacked at the same time. And very clearly, if we look at the surrounding states, um, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, etc., that poses a problem. Um, This emphasis on equality of women uh, and anti-patriarchal organization. Um, and we see examples, you'll probably see in the videos, of women Kurdish fighters um, have equality uh, in the military, etc. Also, interestingly, something I was reading the other day, that the, I don't know how well this is working out in real life, but at least theoretically, all political positions in this democratic confederalism, uh, there is full equality between men and women. Each position is occupied by a man and a woman. Uh, which I think is super interesting. And then the last pillar is social eco- uh, ecology, which comes from straight out of Bookchin, um, an emphasis on treating the natural environment with respect um, and the end of exploitation of natural resources uh, and the killing of the natural world, obviously, which is key. Um, so those are key points in this, in O'Chalon's democratic confederalism. That the Kurds are fighting for in the region.
0: Yeah, I mean, specific to the to the to the video sources that we recommend. And again, once you jump on here, you're gonna see I mean, you yeah, our audience knows how YouTube works clearly. You're gonna see a whole bunch of like related sources on the side, so you can continue your exploration on your own. But again, to to to kind of corroborate what Nick was saying, um, the the first video, Rojava, Kurdish Autonomy and Radical Democracy, is an exclusive interview with uh Elif, who is a Kurdish student union. Uh uh who is part of the Kurdish Student Union in the UK. Um, and she has, again, so many uh, important things to say regarding what life is like on the ground, the goals, and then how they're being implemented. And then, of course, the exclusive, and the, the other one's actually kind of funny. It's it's from France 24 English. But regardless, the other video is super good because the interviews basically reflect what Nick was just saying. They'll interview, of course, the men in uh, positions of power, but then emphasize the women's position of power, right? These women that are are... are working in the and fighting for the YpJ and the roles that they're playing, I think cannot be overlooked. So I'm glad that Nick kind of caught caught on to that um, at the end and was able to to to orient your direct your orient your attention that way.
1: I do also want to say, it's kind of interesting reading about democratic and federalism because democracy is celebrated so much in the West but we don't understand that we actually don't have democracy. So we read this and we're like, well, yeah, this doesn't sound that revolutionary. Like they want a democracy. But just imagine even in the United States, if you tried to do this, that would be considered radical. If you just said, hey, you know what, even just at your local level, which is what Bookchin was all about, like at the city level, just going, you know, actually, I don't want to support the city council. I don't want representative system. We're going to implement fully... Democratic and federalism, where we're going to have local assemblies and the delegates from those assemblies are going to represent the views of the people directly uh, in the council. Just try to implement that and imagine how revolutionary that would be and the kind of backlash that you would face just at your local city in the United States trying to implement that. Now imagine trying to do that in Kurdistan and how revolutionary that is. Uh, it's incredible, I think. Yeah. Like I
0: said, I mean, I can't even think of anything else to say. I would prefer to to to let these representatives uh, speak for themselves. That's why I'm going to just direct the audience that way.
1: Yeah. So I think we'll stop our voices there. Uh, go out. Like Jared said, we don't want to speak for them. That's not what we're about. They can speak for themselves. Uh, much more of an idea of what's going on on the ground level than we have. Um, so we'll stop there. Go out and digest those sources to see what real life is like in Rojava now. Um, you can get these show notes at revolutionandideology.com. We're on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. Uh, we are on iTunes now. So if you have iTunes, go on, uh, subscribe to us there and leave us a rating and a review that'll help us climb in the ratings. If you want to reach out to us, you can do that at hello at revolutionandideology.com. Until next time, I'm Nick Lee. And I'm Jared Benson. See ya.